I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and innovation in the legal industry. On today's episode, I have a conversation with Tabal Shrapel about the impact blockchain might have on antitrust law. A lot of the conversations I've had throughout the years in this podcast focus on how tech is changing the way legal services are delivered or how tech is changing the way lawyers work. But on today's episode, the focus is on how tech might change the law itself. Our guest is Tabal Chappelle. He's a professor at the Free University in Amsterdam, and he's also on the faculty at the Codex Center at Stanford University. Specifically at Stanford, he's involved in the Computational Law Project. That's a project that focuses on regulations to make sure computer applications adhere to law, But it also studies how to maximize the use of technology to enhance access to justice and improving the legal system as a whole. What we will hear, though, is Tabal is really into antitrust law. In fact, he knew he wanted to pursue a career in antitrust on the very first day of the very first antitrust class he had in law school. But it's not only antitrust that Tabal is into. He's also really into tech. In fact, he has a certificate from Harvard for computer science for lawyers. So it makes sense that he likes to study the intersection of antitrust law and blockchain technology. Through his study of and passion for law and tech, Tabal has concluded that the maxim code is law might be true, but there's still a need for rules and law to govern tech and computer code. This is especially true for blockchain because he believes that too can be used to engage in anti-consumer and anti-competitive practices. But Tabal also believes that technology provides a unique opportunity to identify and protect against anti-competitive behavior. In fact, he just put out a book entitled Blockchain and Antitrust that explores the subject. It's a good thing that Tabal knew early on he was interested in law and tech. Because he grew up in France, and unlike the U.S., he started his legal training right out of high school. So that's quite typical in France, and I'm aware that the same isn't true in the U.S., but here, for the most part, you will go to high school, and then you go straight to law school. The duration of it is uh, five years if you want to get a master's degree, and then you have to have a few more years if you want to get a PhD, which is what I did. But, you know, I've done the typical French thing, which is straight out of high school, go to law school study for five years. Then I studied in the US for one year. And this is when I realized that I wanted to start a PhD. I thought this was so interesting to see the differences and the similarities between the two that I wanted to investigate all that. The similarities and the differences between the United States legal system versus a French or European legal system? Exactly. Yes. And I was specialized already in competition law antitrust. uh, And this is mostly what I studied when I came in the US. And I thought, well, it is not that's different, actually. And so I thought, you know, I had room to explore the big tech companies and the way to tackle those companies from a global perspective. So combining European competition law and US antitrust law. Uh, And so that's what I've done. I was working in a law firm at the time because I still wasn't sure if I wanted to practice or to do research as a full-time researcher. And the choice eventually, you know, emerged from all that. And this was clear that I was made for research. So I've chosen this path. And I saw you went to law school in Brooklyn. Yep, correct. You got the master's of law here in the United States. Yes. And uh, then the PhD that I got after that was uh, co-supervised by uh, one professor in the U.S., uh, actually Loyola Chicago, not too far away from where you live, and another one from Paris. And again, so the PhD was written in both French and in English and published in the U.S. and in France. And I was tackling uh, the big tech companies and what I called predatory innovation from both perspectives at the same time. What is it about antitrust that piqued your interest? Because you've been learning about it and studying it and working with it for a long time now. 
you know, it's a funny story. I do remember the very first time, the very first day when I went to the antitrust class in law school. Uh, this was a two hour long class. And after one hour, we had a break. And then I went to my friend and I said, well, that's it. That's what I want to do. This was the very first time, you know, I had this impression. And I think for me, what worked is the fact that antitrust is being connected to day-to-day -day life and to problems that you hear about, you know, in, in the media and outside of the, the legal system. And so I guess this is why I had an interest in it. I also come from no one in my family, at least to the best of my knowledge, is a lawyer. No one ever been to law school. And so this was, you know, an appeal for me to go to law school. But then the business side of it uh, probably kicked in when I studied antitrust and I decided, yeah, let's give it a try. And I'm still, you know, obsessed with it. So I guess this was a good choice for me. And obviously you're interested in tech. Among other things, you have a certificate from Harvard for computer science for lawyers. When was it that you got interested in tech? And then when was it that you got interested in tech as it relates to law? So, you know, same, I guess. When I was young, I remember buying those. It, it would sound very weird to the youngest listening to us, but I was buying those magazines in which they were just displaying the new, not the smartphones, because it did not exist at the time, but the new phones, right? So you had the, the Nokia and the, and the very old, uh, I don't know, HTC. And, and so I was very interested in, in understanding the tech from a tech perspective. Uh, then I went to law school and eventually thought, well, I do want to combine the two, but... This was uh, quite a few years ago now, and this wasn't a thing at all. You know, the fact that you were interested in tech, at least in, in the French law schools, was, I mean, you know, good for you, but uh, nothing that you could do uh, from a professional perspective. And then again, when I went to the US and learned about antitrust, I thought, well, I think now is the time for me to, to study the strategies implemented by the big tech companies from an antitrust perspective. And this was very convenient because we had just one case in Europe and just a few in the United States. So, you know, it's kind of a dream because it gives you the room to create the law potentially instead of, you know, studying all the case law. So I guess, yeah, this comes from, you know, outside of what I've learned in law school. And this is a personal interest very much. You just put a book out. I believe it was last year. Uh, Blockchain Antitrust is the title. You open up this book with a very interesting, and I'd like you to, to go deeper on it, but you talk about how the advent of cyberspace, the internet, and ultimately blockchain may be possibly traced to Stuart Brand's Whole Earth Catalog. Tell me about that. Explain the connection and what it was and how it ends up being what nowadays we know as, as the internet. Sure. He is the inventor of the DIY movement, the idea that you could do it yourself. And what's behind this idea was that for him, the objective was to free individuals and to enable the individuals to behave freely according to their own wishes. And Stewart thought that the way to achieve that was to free the individuals from the state mainly, right? So uh, he first printed a catalog, the Wall Hearth catalog, and uh, this was just a, a list of tools that you could buy and acquire so you could build a cabin in the woods. He had a store in Northern California, and the catalog was the items he had in the store with his wife, right? Indeed. So it started in a van and then eventually became popular. And so he had to edit a catalog to list all of the tools in the van because this was quite a big one, I suppose. Uh, and then eventually uh, printed the catalog and uh, sold 
I forgot if it's three or four million copies of the catalog, open the store, and this ID eventually inspired the cypherpunks in the, the 80s and the 90s, and their idea was to say, well, we like the ID to enable individual, and we're going to do it in a way which is more digital. What we're going to do is to develop uh, encryption techniques so that people can actually behave the way they want in the cyberspace. And this idea was actually, I think, taken a step further with blockchain. The idea being here that the way to enable people is not only to hide their identity, which was the dream of the cypherpunks, uh, but also to get loose of control. And indeed, if there is no single entity in charge of an ecosystem, then it does not make any sense under a rule of law system to go to one person and assign liability because the person cannot control in the first place. So this is why I believe there is a tie between the blockchain space and Stuart Brandt, and by the way, is being invited and sometimes you know goes to conferences discussing blockchain and is very much active in the space. So it seems that the story uh, old, at least for now. So blockchain, I've got a twofold question for you. When is the first time you hear about it? And then maybe it's the same instance, but when is it, in your life where you say, ah, blockchain, I get this. I understand how it's going to change technology and the way we interact with each other in the future, but also how it's going to impact law. When were those two moments in your life? So the first time was in 2014. The follow-up question, I guess, is did I buy any Bitcoin at the time? The answer is negative. (laughs) And, you know, this was when I was doing research for my PhD and I thought, well, I do not really understand blockchain. And so I'm just going to put one paragraph in my PhD so that, you know, I could actually go in case it actually becomes something. I just wanted to go to places and say, see, I I saw it and and, uh, I knew it all along, which of course wasn't true. So I just included one paragraph in my PhD and actually someone from the uh, OECD uh, in Paris bought the PhD, not for the paragraph, but for the subject of the PhD, I suppose. And this was in 18. Uh, and the OECD at the time was organizing a roundtable in which they invite all the competition agencies to discuss the subject. And they do invite three, four or five experts on the subject to highlight you know, what's important in the space. And for the very first time, they wanted to discuss blockchain and competition law. So, of course, I said that I wanted to be part of the, the roundtable uh, since they invited me. And this is when I, for the first time, understood blockchain, whatever that means. Uh, I spent literally days and nights trying to come up first with a list of questions. I sent those questions to the people I could trust in the space. Every time the answer will be quite similar, I will put that on the side as being valid. And then eventually I you know, understood the ecosystem that way, uh, I suppose. When we come back in just a couple of minutes, Tibal explains that although computer code may provide rules of the road for contracts in the future, there's still going to be a need for good old-fashioned laws and lawyers. He also explains how blockchain can be used for anti-competitive behavior and how to prevent against that. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient, a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We'll get back to my conversation with Tabal Chappell in just a second. But before I do, I want to let you know that at tlpodcast.com, you can find a dedicated episode page about this episode and every other episode of the podcast. On those pages, you'll find links to more information about our guests and some of the stuff we talk about. 
So some blockchain purists will tell you that code is law, and eventually we may not even need lawyers or the government because the relationships are going to be governed by code. But Tabal doesn't agree with that. In fact, he believes that tech and the law must get along. This is so because, like all other human inventions, computer code is subject to human foibles, dishonesty, and mistakes. And as a result, you're going to need laws, and you're going to need the help of lawyers to navigate disputes. It is law because, indeed, code can be changed, but so the law can be changed as well, right? And it is true that the way you design things will impact the way we behave online. So if I take a very concrete example, if I design a social media and I put a big button to say, click here to publish a video, and a tiny button down the page to say, click here to publish a picture, most people will publish videos. And if I do the exact opposite, most people will publish pictures. So it is indeed the law in a sense that it will govern the way you behave. It doesn't mean that it is self-sufficient. And uh, what we see, actually, when it comes to blockchain, where I think it's very interesting, because the idea is that you could decentralize the entire ecosystem, get rid of the rule of law and the legal system such as they exist, and that you will rely just on the code. And the idea is that because of that, there will be no power and no concentration of power and influence. But what you see when there is a problem and what you need to act quickly you see where the power really lies. And so to be very concrete, three years ago in 18, some guy discovered a bug in the code of Bitcoin that could be exploited and, and allow people to just double spend all the Bitcoins that they had. And if the bug was indeed exploited, it would have meant that the value of Bitcoin would have become zero immediately. And what you see there is that he actually gave a phone call to one of the core developers and that core developers get a phone call to other core developers of Bitcoin, and eventually they reach out to the big mining pools. And so you see that there is power and there is a need sometime to regulate those human relationships because humans, as far as I know, are in charge of designing the code. It will, it will change eventually. But for now, this is what we see. And so this is one reason why code is law, but it is not self-sufficient. It could be also to be very concrete that you will see that power outside the ecosystem here, the blockchain ecosystem will impact the inside of an ecosystem. To be very concrete, what if a big bank or a big tech company says, I will prohibit advertisements related to blockchain on my platform. This will create an impact within the blockchain ecosystem. And yet code can't do anything, right? Because this is not a practice which is made out of code necessarily. So this is why I think that we need one to complement the other. And it goes also the other way around, because for lawyers, the idea that the code is not self-sufficient is very easy to admit. Uh, but for lawyers, the idea that the law is not self-sufficient is much harder to admit. And I think it is also true. And this is why we sometimes, as lawyers, need to, um, uh, in a sense, utilize the code so that we can reach the legal objective in a way which is more efficient. So this is the entire message of the book. Uh, entitled, indeed, Blockchain Plus Antitrust, in which you add one to the other. So I think it would be helpful, too, to define here when you say, well, you know, you need both code and humans, and in, if there's a problem or in cases of urgency, as you describe it, you see where the power lies. Define power. How are you defining power here? Right? You gave the example of they had to call on the core developers to fix the, the code for blockchain. So the power was with them to fix that. But talk about theoretically when you say where the power lies. It's not always going to be with the developers. It's going to be elsewhere. Yeah. So, and this is, I think, the most central question when it comes to blockchain and antitrust. I'm going to try my best to make it clear. 
the entire body of antitrust law, and the same is true in the US, in Europe, in Brazil, in other countries, is that the idea of power is based on the work of Ronald Coase, the Nobel Prize winner. Uh, and the idea here is that power should be vertical and it should enable you to save transaction costs, right? And so according to Ronald Coase, this is why we have firms and not just people out there on the market. Because sometimes if you are part of the same firm, you can actually, by way of power, exercising power, order someone to do something for you. And if so, you do not need to negotiate a contract. You do not need you know, to, to find the person and that will actually allow you to save costs. And so this is the idea of power when it comes to competition law. The idea of power is pretty much similar when it comes to corporate law. And so this in turn is the idea of command and control, right? You can actually impose orders and people who execute those orders. And what's very interesting is that when it comes to the blockchain ecosystem, especially for the public and the permissionless blockchains, there is no such power. No one can actually go to another blockchain user and say, you're going to sell your token or I'm going to prevent your transaction. This is not technically possible. And yet, I believe that there is another form of power, which is not a power of command and control, which is not vertical, but a power which is horizontal, which is more in a sense of uh, influencing people's behavior. So if I say to you, I'm going to make the price of your transaction incredibly expensive, I'm not imposing that you will not transact, but I'm creating an incentive for you not to transact. And what you see, if you look at each blockchain, is that there are groups of users, they uh, encompass users, the core developers, and the miners, generally speaking, and they come together so that they could actually influence the other users, the end goal being to ensure survival, right? Because indeed, if you could not actually, you know, gather and coordinate with other users, you could never maximize the chances that your favorite blockchain will survive. And so this is why we see those people coming together. So this is a new form of power, more in the sphere of influencing rather than commanding and controlling people's behavior, and yet it exists. You also believe, too, that while there's a chance that antitrust behavior can occur on a blockchain, you're also a big proponent of using tech to prevent against antitrust, both from a governmental perspective and from the firm perspective, from a corporate perspective. And specifically, you're involved with the computational antitrust project at Codex at Stanford. Explain what that is. Explain to the person on the street what computational antitrust is. Sure. So... The idea to utilize the tech when it comes to enabling the law, which could be, by the way, creating the law or enforcing the law or scrutinizing whether the law is effective or not, I think has two different aspects. First, it could be that the objective reached by the tech is similar to the objective that the law is trying to achieve, which is the relationship we have with blockchain and antitrust. Both of them are seeking decentralization, which I define as the ability to behave the way you want. And so this is one phase of that relationship. Would this be a good example of what you're talking about there, decentralization of the blockchain, how it has the same aims of the law? So for instance, Facebook or now Meta is always getting scrutinized by governments because they're trying to prevent antitrust risk in the market. So there's that from a governmental perspective. They're trying to promote competition. On a blockchain level, it can be used to decentralize social media and so therefore spread power. And so is, am I correctly 
paraphrasing what you're pointing out there, that the aims of blockchain and the aims of the governmental antitrust authorities can work hand in hand because they have the same goal in the end. Yes, precisely. And so the idea is that you will, again, free individuals, right, and enable them to transact freely. And so this is what you have. If you have a fully decentralized social media, you can use it the way you want. And this is the objective that competition agencies or antitrust agencies are trying to achieve. And so here, the objective is pretty much similar, if not the same. And so for that reason, when I'm not saying that we should not, you know, enforce antitrust against the big tech companies when they infringe it, but it might be that a policy that you also want to implement is the one by which you will also enable blockchain to flourish because blockchain will compete with those big tech companies and eventually create an ecosystem in which, again, if you have no individual with a power of command and control, it means that all the anti-competitive practices that comes with that sort of power goes away, right? And so this is in their best interest. And it seems that most agencies are aware of that. And, and I'm pleased to see that they are very careful when it comes to intervening in the blockchain space because they do want to preserve blockchain capacities to survive. And we know, according to Darwin, that you survive if you can differentiate yourself from the other species. So what differentiates blockchains from the big tech is decentralization. So this is what I argue for in the book. Competition agencies should intervene in the blockchain space when necessary, but be sure to maintain decentralization because, again, they uh, actually try to achieve the same goal as antitrust agencies. So this is one aspect. The other aspect is more methodological in a sense, and this is where I kick off the conversation about computational antitrust. The idea here is that you use the tech in a way to better enable the law. And so from the perspective of government and agencies, it could be that you want to use AI or blockchain, and I'm more than happy to give examples, so that competition agencies will work better and will be more accurate and fair. It might also be from the perspective of companies that they actually utilize the tech so that it is easier for them to comply with the law because most companies do want to comply, right? And so, again, you do have those two aspects. One is regarding the substance of what tech and law are trying to achieve. The other one is regarding the method in which you use the tech to better enable the law. Let's talk about the method. I want to hear some examples because on the website, on the computational antitrust website, but you say... Implementation of computational methods can indeed contribute to and improve antitrust agencies' ability to detect, analyze, and remedy anti-competitive practices. What are examples of tech being used or ways it can be used to detect and prevent these uh, anti-competitive practices? What we do with the project is that each month we publish an academic article, which is available in open access. And if you go to just competitionalantitrust.com, it will actually redirect you to, to Stanford website. And so we've published quite a few papers already and organized a conference in December of last year, which is also available in, in open access. And uh, what we had is quite a few academics who presented their research. And so to be very specific, it could be that first, what you are trying to achieve is to better understand each agency's own case law. Right, And this is something that all agencies could do, also outside the realm of antitrust. And we should point out, too, that it's uh, not just academics involved in this, in computational antitrust. There, there are many governmental agencies, antitrust agencies worldwide that are also involved in the project. 
yeah, we actually reached 60 agencies who are cooperating with us and reading our work and contributing and explaining what they do in the space. It seems that indeed most agencies, if not pretty much all of them, are very much interested. Uh, we do have the FTC, the DOJ in the US, but we also have some you know, small competition agencies with just two or three employees. So of course they are looking for a different type of tech, but again, it seems that regardless of the size of the agency, what you could do is take your own case law, label the case law. What it means is that you will take a decision. You would say, okay, I'm going to be looking for a specific number of criteria within my own case law. It could be the type of practices, the name of the companies, the time the practices were implemented, for how long the damage caused to the consumers, etc., etc. And then on that basis, you could train machine learning system to detect new patterns. And so this is one of the papers we published and what we saw is that they were actually able, using those machine learning systems, especially the unsupervised one, in which you just provide the data and let the machine find the output. What we saw is that uh, they were able to detect patterns which are invisible to the human eye. So this is one way of improving the work of competition agencies. Another way is to take the data not within the agency, but out there, meaning the data on the market. And so it could be that web scraping could, could be useful. It could be that natural language processing could be helpful as well. The FTC is using such a tool. So for instance, when they have public procurement, uh, what they do is that they will actually provide all the documentation to a tool that they have developed called Relativity. And they will ask the tool to detect whether or not there is a cartel between the companies. Of course, the companies will never say we have colluded with the other company and therefore that's why the price is the same. And yet, using natural language processing, you can detect what's the meaning behind the words and therefore, again, improve the work of competition agencies. That's another example when it comes to, to detection. It could be also when it comes to the analysis that you want to use those tools to improve the analysis that you do using agent-based modelings in which you create computer simulation and try to see what's going to be the effect of a practice or the effect of a remedy that you will impose to the companies. You may want to use blockchain as well to say, for instance, that big companies will have to record their turnover within private blockchains so that when they notify a merger to the agency, they actually give access to their private blockchain, which will prevent companies from deleting information the day before sending the database over to the agency. So there are lots of solutions, a lot of them that I'm not aware of, and we, that's why we've created the project to you know, um, discover new techniques. But the space is, is moving very fast, and that's very exciting. You just mentioned there a private blockchain. We should probably explain that. Distinguish between a private blockchain and an open blockchain, because I think most people think, well, it's free, you know, it's decentralized, permissionless, anybody can access it. But there's a distinction. Blockchain is a technology that can be closely held or open to all. Explain the differences there. Yeah, so you do have three big types of blockchain. First one, a blockchain could be public and permissionless. The public nature of the blockchain relates to the access to the blockchain. If the blockchain is public, it means anyone can just download a copy of the entire blockchain if you just have the free space on your computer. Bitcoin is a good example. If you want, you could actually download a copy of all the transactions ever implemented on top of that blockchain. If the blockchain is on top of being public, permissionless, what it means here is what you try to describe here is who controls the validations of the transactions. 
Bitcoin is again a good example because anyone just providing computer power could be the one validating the transactions, right? So public and permissionless is type one. Type two, public still, so anyone can see the ledger, the database, but permissioned. What it means here is that certain selected users will be in charge of validating the transactions. This is what Facebook want to do with their own cryptocurrency. I'm not too sure uh, if they will ever launch the currency, but this was kind of the project. The idea being that just Facebook and a few other companies will actually validate the transactions. And why would you want to do that? Because when you validate the transactions, you have a reward, right? So you could be sure to direct the reward to just some selected users. So public and permissioned is type two. And the third is private. Private means that not only you need access to see what's inside the database, uh, but you also need at least the same access to be able to validate the transactions by definition. It could be that you have different access levels, right? It could be that it's an easy access to get to just see the transactions, but it won't give you the right to validate the transactions. It could be some more conditions. And so in turn, the player in charge of deciding to grant access or not and to change the conditions is pretty much in charge of the blockchain. So we go back to something which is pretty similar to the centralized world, such as we know, in which you do have a clear pilot in the cockpit, which is not true for public and permissionless blockchain. So let's talk about blockchain and antitrust. Explain how antitrust activities can occur among participants on a blockchain. Sure. So here again, you have to make a distinction between two different types of practices. First type, it could be that those participants will actually collude, to be very concrete, in a way to impact the inside of the blockchain, right? So we can imagine that miners who are the one in charge of validating transactions will eventually collude in a way to raise the fees for people to use the blockchain and implement transactions. It could be that some mining pools will be overdominant and will eventually attack the blockchain and implement a practice which is not in the best interest of the community. So that's a 51% attack, right? Exactly. Yes. You need more than 50% of the nodes, the participants, the miners, the validators to agree to collude together to change the blockchain in some way. Yes, and it's even more complicated than that, because should you get 51% of a blockchain mining power for just 10 seconds, you could change the rule potentially, but after those 10 seconds, you will lose the majority. So you couldn't actually make sure that most of the users will be convinced by the rules such as you have changed. So they could actually go back to the original state. So what you need is to be overdominant. 51% is the minimum, but you know ideally you will get 90% for at least a week or a month so that you will actually change the rules of the blockchain and say to the people, if you keep using that blockchain, you have to comply by the new rules, right? So the 51% attack gives the wrong impression that you could just control it for just a second and change the entire blockchain, which isn't true. But so this is the type of practices that we see already. Type of practice number two is when you see that the blockchain is being used to infringe antitrust law in the real space. So here it's not related to the inside of the blockchain, but it could be that, for instance, you see that supermarkets will use a blockchain to implement the term of a cartel between them. And I believe that a very efficient way for them to do that would be to use it to use smart contracts because they could automate their entire agreement that way. But again, here what you see is that the entire blockchain functions such as it should 
but it is being used to impact the prices in those supermarkets, which impacts consumers in a very direct way. So those are the two big types of practices that I believe you, you might see within the ecosystem. And we do have a few cases already uh, trialed in the United States. So we, we know that it exists. What are those examples in the United States? So the case number one, I believe it is the first, is uh, Gallagher versus BitcoinTalk.org. What happened in that case is that a blockchain developer, Ryan Gallagher, uh, was uh, kicked out of a BitcoinTalk.org forum, which is the number one forum in the space, the one that Satoshi Nakamoto was using to you know, describe the idea of Bitcoin at the time, when it was still active, or she, or it, or they. So what Gallagher argued is that by being excluded from the forum, it became impossible for him to get access to great blockchain developers and therefore to put a new competing blockchain on the market in the known and therefore to compete with Bitcoin. And he argued that this amounted to an infringement of antitrust law, namely Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which prevents monopolization. So the abuse of power against other uh, market players, lost the case, mainly because he refused to pay the court uh, fees, which did not help. But I think the idea, I mean, this was a long shot before you could prove that without access to one forum, you couldn't develop a great currency. But this idea that you might see a power outside the blockchain ecosystem per se, right here, it was just a forum which is coded not you know, using code on top of a blockchain. This is just a regular forum. Uh, I think this idea is very powerful. And we have, for instance, ongoing investigations against uh, big banks in Brazil, in which some developers are arguing that because they were prevented from opening bank accounts using those big banks, uh, it was actually much harder for them to have a entrepreneur activity and therefore to be able to put a new blockchain out there and compete with the big bank. So we're going to see what the competition agency will say. But this is a very powerful idea. And for sure, we're going to see such cases in the future. So this is case number one. Case number two is a case which relates to the inside of the blockchain. What happened here in the Bitmain case versus American Corp is that some users in the Bitcoin cash blockchain disagreed regarding the size of the blocks. I could explain why that is, but long story short, there is no right and wrong. You may have blocks with 10 transactions or with 30 transactions, it has pros and cons. And so what they've done is that they forked the blockchain. What it means is that you actually take the database, you duplicate the entire database, and you say, from now on, we're going to have new rules for users to put new transactions in our version of the database. This is a fork. Fork in the road. It's a fork in the road. Blockchain goes exactly. one way, maybe the old blockchain goes exactly. the other way. Exactly. You have to play by the rule, otherwise you could stay with the original blockchain if you want. And so the first group wasn't too happy about it, and they said, well, this is an infringement of antitrust law because what you've done is that you have colluded to divide the original value of the blockchain. Again, they lost the case because it is actually really hard to prove that uh, it was bad for competition when, in fact, they have created a new version of the blockchain with new rules, which creates more mm -hmm. competition. Interesting. Yeah. But, and something that the court did not address because they were not actually able to prove it, but the plaintiff were saying that what the second group did when they forked the blockchain is that they went to China, rented some computer power, and actually allocated that computer power to their new version of the blockchain, so to send a signal that the fork was successful and that all the users have decided to move to the second version of the blockchain. So it could be, again, that in the future, such cases will be seen as being anti-competitive. 
And the very final one, I couldn't resist but to mention that one because it is still ongoing and the numbers are huge, to say the least. This is the case against Tether. In the case, allegedly, Tether, which is a cryptocurrency, uh, manipulated the market by pretending that their token equaled one US dollar, which is called a stablecoin. And we know for a fact now that this wasn't true because the CFTC in the United States actually sanctioned Tether in September of 2021 for lying about it. And they imposed a fine of 40 million US dollars. It sounds like a big number, but what's coming could be way worse because they were actually able to issue some Tether into their wallets and they used those Tether, those tokens, to buy other cryptocurrencies. And people were very much willing to actually, you know, trade their cryptocurrencies with Tether because they thought, well, one Tether equal one US dollar. So, you know, the value is, is fixed, so I take no risk. But when eventually it was revealed that one Tether did not equal one US dollar for real by way of an academic paper, the value of Bitcoin crashed by 600 billion US dollars in just a month. And the people who bought Bitcoin right before that are not happy about it. And they are now suing the creators of Tether for three times the amount of what they suffered, meaning 1.4 trillion US dollars in treble damages. So the case is still ongoing. I believe it will take two or three more years for, for us to have a final judgment. But you see that the numbers are quite big. And uh, it could be that uh, it will actually ring the bell, you know, at the end of the game and be the collapse of the entire blockchain ecosystem. Uh, it could be that the entire community will just disregard the judgment and think, well, that's, you know, the legal system, we don't care. It's, it's really hard to predict how people could react to a sanction in the case, but the effect could be quite, quite big. You don't want that to happen. You want blockchain and law to get along. In fact, in your book, you say they must become allies. And you have some ideas about that, how legal authorities and law can attach to antitrust concerns or maybe even bad actors, antitrust bad actors on the blockchain. It involves changing, uh, creating some new legal fictions, identifying the nucleus of where these people collude. What are your ideas there? How legal authorities can create some order to a blockchain or antitrust acts on a blockchain? A good friend just published a book called Emergent Orders, and uh, I believe this is what we need very much. So I'm not in favor of agencies ordering blockchains and deciding, you know, which innovation should get a free pass and which one should be prohibited. But there are some very specific actions that governments and agencies could undertake. And this is what I try to explore in part three of the book, because indeed you could call for cooperation all you want, but Eventually, you're going to see some tensions, such as we discussed together, between blockchain and antitrust, and you do want to have a very specific program in mind. So what I describe is, first, when you enforce the law here, antitrust, do it in a way that will protect the blockchain ecosystem. So go after the big tech companies, go after the big banks, go after you know the players outside the ecosystems, which are trying to impact the inside of the blockchain to kill the technology because they see blockchain as being a competitive threat. So this is item number one. Item number two, when you have to enforce antitrust within the blockchain ecosystem because there is an infringement, do it. It should be done. But be careful and mindful of the fact that when you impose a remedy, you want to do it in a way that will preserve blockchain chances of survival, which, as we discussed, is the ability for blockchain to differentiate itself from other systems. 
And I believe this is central and, and we need to enact such remedies. This was item number two. Item number three, it could be that from a more uh, regulatory point of view, you may want to create what is being labeled uh, sandboxes of safe harbors or innovation hubs, which will enable the regulator to better understand the ecosystem and then eventually to give a free pass if a blockchain is designed in a certain way and eventually to generalize those free passes. So this is for the regulation. Uh, Something which is dear to me, and I'm not aware of any initiative in the space, will be to monitor all the potential practices of regulatory captures that we're going to see in the space. Indeed, the big players are going to feel threatened by blockchain, and they do already. We've mentioned, you know, Facebook and the metaverse, and I think this is a very interesting example because what they are now saying is that they will actually allow you to use your NFTs that you bought outside of the Facebook ecosystem and to put it within your Facebook metaverse, which I see as being a clear surrender because Facebook understand now that it cannot stop blockchain and so they are trying to recapture the value in a different way. But it will also certainly come with anti-competitive practices at some points, not only from Facebook, but all the companies. And so I'm worried that some of those companies, when they're going to see that competing is hard, will go to the regulator and say, please regulate that blockchain because what it does is not fair to us. And so this is a big risk. I'm not saying that no regulation should be taken in the space, quite the contrary, but we should be mindful of the fact that some player is going to try to capture the regulation. And those players, by the way, can be the public players themselves. The Facebook uh, investigation by the European Commission, I think, is very interesting. Facebook announced a new cryptocurrency, and regardless of all the issues that we have with that, with that currency, and I've written a paper about it listing all the antitrust issues, what I'm worried about is that the European Commission, a week after the currency was announced, said that they were investigating Facebook cryptocurrency, which is the first time, to the best of my knowledge, that the European Commission is investigating a product or service that does not exist yet. And it says something. It says that the European Commission feel threatened by Facebook cryptocurrency, and I think they should. And so it might be that eventually if blockchain expands and uh, goes to the territory of those public institutions, such as the public services, and you know, start providing people with something which could be similar to one of those public services, we're going to see regulation in the space to try to push blockchain away. And so we should also be worried about such capture. Appreciate your time today. Covered a lot of ground. Uh, so if people want to learn more about computational antitrust, find your books, learn more about you, where should they go? Everything is open access. So if you want to learn more about computational antitrust, you just go to computationalantitrust.com. It will direct you to Stanford webpage. If you want to read my book, it is also open access. You go to blockchainantitrust.com and it will direct you to the book. You could always you know, send me a message on Twitter and social media. And yeah, thank you so very much for a great discussion. So that's it for another episode of Technically Legal. As always, we appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on almost every major podcast platform, including Spotify, Apple, Google, etc., etc. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot me an email at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Until next time, thanks for listening, and this has been Technically Legal.